0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, stage two reopening in Ontario, but not for all of us. What does it mean to defund the police? And is that the way to respond to the tragic death of George Floyd? In Hamilton, 43% of the new cases in the last 10 days have been those in the 20 or younger demographic. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Just finished up uh, Premier Doug Ford's uh, news conference. Here is what the Premier had to say about the next stage of opening and doing it regionally.
1: We're moving forward with a regional approach. And we're moving forward with an approach that lets us make decisions for specific parts of Ontario based on what's happening on the ground based on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health, our command table, and our local public health experts. Most regions in Ontario will be allowed to proceed to stage two this Friday, June the 12th.
0: All right, unfortunately, that does not include the greater Toronto-Hamilton area because the number's still high. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for taking the time, hope you're well. Yes, and uh, my pleasure. Your thoughts on opening up uh, the province for stage two, but only in, uh, I guess, uh, more rural areas, not so much for the greater Toronto-Hamilton area.
1: Um, it's a step in the right direction, but it isn't enough. It's inadequate. Um, I think that they're being far too cautious and conservative, and people can say, what's wrong with that? Well, we have to be evidence-based. And, the, um, for example, last week, the Center for Disease Control, very prestigious organization, just did a radical uh, reduction in their data uh, and their estimates, and they reduced the COVID mortality rate, that's the death rate in the United States from COVID-19, to 0.2. People say, well, so what? What's 0.2? Well, influenza, and this is from CDC, the Center for Disease Control Statistical Database, influenza is 0.1. In other words, one tenth of 1% of people die from influenza. They now estimate that COVID is two tenths of
2: 1%.
1: That's not to trivialize it, and it's certainly not to suggest that we're all equally at risk. That's always been my argument. Seniors and people with uh, compromised uh, immune systems, people with diabetes, people who are obese, are very high risk. I'm one of those people because I have rheumatoid arthritis and I take immunosuppressive drugs, so I'm very high risk. But the vast majority of people in Ontario and Canada are not high-risk, and we have to have a risk-based approach. And on top of all this, the numbers are declining very dramatically, both infections and actual uh, the mortality statistics in Canada. So my, my point being that I think that they can, um, and there's certainly a pediomologist on the record because some listeners may say, well, you're not a doctor, what are you talking about? There are some very important epidemiologists who are on the record from Stanford University, from Harvard, from Oxford, who are saying that the risk is very low and declining. And uh, this is not to say that just throw open the gates and let it all hang out, Uh, but we can open. I mean, after all, there were protests all across Canada and the states, and it was encouraged, actually, by public health officials. Mm -hmm. And this is on the record. And Mr. Trudeau himself was at a, a, a very large uh, contingent. Um, I so, your on thoughts him.
0: on your thoughts on that? Ian, are we getting mixed messaging here? Because again, uh, the, the Prime Minister is being criticized today for uh, not conducting, holding normal parliamentary sittings because it's right. not safe, and yet he's out there, uh, right. and certainly not social distancing amongst those that are demonstrating. Are we getting mixed messages here? Is this hypocrisy?
1: we we certainly are we certainly are there's just no question about it and uh, uh because you have to choose, just turn on your tv set uh, and you can see um, that there's all kinds of people out there and and it's being criticized uh, you know young people are being criticized there was a picture on the cbc website and in uh, i think the Toronto paper saying look at all those young people at the park all out hanging around together and they weren't even talking about the protests and i said well yes to defend our young people they get the message They understand that the risk is far lower than we are being told. If it was so risky, public health across the states, Europe, Canada, would have said to the protesters, don't you dare go out there. This is very high risk. And they didn't. They encouraged them. In other words, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're saying, oh, very high risk, high risk, got to stay home. You can't go to funerals. You can't go to weddings. You can't go out to the park." and hang around together. But by the way, you can go out in very, very large numbers shoulder to shoulder on a protest. I'm not criticizing the protest. I want to make that very clear. Yep, yep, yep. I, I understand the protests are, are driven by very great sincerity against police brutality in the states, which has been there for a long time and been very well recorded. I get that. My point is, is that public health and the leaders are saying, oh my God, there's all this terrible risk out there. And then they don't even uh, acknowledge that, or they they contradict themselves by saying, but it's all right to go out and protest, and then the prime minister goes out and and is out there with the protesters, very close together, cheek by jowl, and he's saying, but we can't have parliament meeting. So I I think that there is, and and one of the polls I saw, national polls in Canada, showed that more than 50% of people don't trust what the government is telling them because they see these mixed messages. And so people are losing their trust, and I don't think that's a good thing
0: uh... interesting uh... information coming out of hamilton this weekend forty three percent of the new cases over the last ten days are all those that are twenty and under forty three percent of the new cases young people are getting out there a lot more than
1: me (laughs) and my generation let me tell you i'm not out there i'm not trying to say that there's no risk i'm I'm not saying that at all i mean what i am saying is uh... older people uh, above sixty five and people with serious health issues are high risk, not only of becoming infected, but of becoming really, really sick. Whereas when you look at young people, first off, their infection rates are lower, and their mortality rates are infinitesimally tiny. So I think that young people are, and I'm certainly hearing this from my own students, I stay in touch with my students, and they're discounting this, saying, sure, I may get it, but, you know, I've heard this from my own niece, my sister's daughter. She says, sure, I might get it, but I'm like you know getting the flu or something Uh, i'm not saying that's correct i'm saying that's i think how young people are processing this information and yes they're getting there more of them are becoming sick but the stats around the world in every country show that it's the people who are really getting sick i mean once they get infected it's by and large not young people and i always get an email from somebody who points one person who got really really sick or even passed away who was young Mm. but these are statistical anomalies I mean, we've seen the data in Canada over, what is it, 80% of all the people that have died have been elderly people in in, uh, long-term care homes. That's no justification. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just simply saying that we are in denial if we're saying anybody can equally get it and equally die from it. The, The stats do not support such a statement.
0: When do you think uh, these areas will open for stage two? As the premier said, they're expanding in in the uh, more remote areas. I shouldn't say remote areas, but certainly areas yeah. that are not around the Greater Toronto Hamilton area. Yeah. When do you think we'll start to see that? Is that a couple of weeks away? And and how much will these businesses suffer hanging on and being closed those extra couple of weeks?
1: Well, the yeah, I mean, I can understand. I'm not criticizing allowing you know businesses in smaller uh, centers where the Congestion is a lot smaller. The densities are much smaller. You know, uh, towns outside of Ottawa, you know, with five or ten or fifteen thousand people, um, they were never hotbeds of of uh, coronavirus infection in the first place. So you know, rural, quasi rural, whatever we want to call that, smaller towns, cities, communities, you know, that makes sense. The problem is, is the GTA is where the majority of people in Ontario are located. And, I mean, the GTA, depending how you draw the number, is eight or nine million. You know, some say it's six, some say it's seven. We won't get quibble about that. And there's an awful lot of businesses there that are hanging on. And my fear, my great fear, and I have testified before the Finance Committee, a business could, you know, have it take a hit for a month or two. But, you know, they're running out of their runway. They're running out of cushion. They're running out of resources. And once they do close, and the stats on this are very, very clear in Canada, states, and elsewhere, what they so-called long-term employment, it's much more difficult for policymakers to address the long-term employed because the longer you're out of the labor force, the more your skills rust, they atrophy, they go down, employers are less willing to hire you. And this is my fear. It's not that I'm trying to say, well, let's just all go back to work and the hell with it. That's not my point. We can go back with social distancing and all kinds of measures to make sure that we minimize the the contact. But we can't, I don't, I don't think we can just continue to completely lock down the economy. In fact, Governor, former Governor David Dodge, one of the most respected people in this country, has said the economy cannot, simply cannot suffer a second lockdown. Mm. And uh, so I think that we need to be looking at oh, reopening all of these businesses with, with the appropriate measures in place. Um, and, I, and, you know, given that the numbers are declining very dramatically and we, we minimize the, you know, the mm-hmm. cheek by jowl, shoulder to shoulder type of contact, uh, then I think we can minimize the risk.
0: Ian Lee has been with us, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. The premier uh, announcing today that as of June 12th, certain areas will start to enter Stage 2. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, let's move on. Uh, we uh, are hearing from the premier today talking about Stage 2 opening up in uh, next Friday, June 12th. Uh, That being said, uh, certainly not in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, which is still seeing some hot spots here and there. So uh, not the case so far for us. But what about household debt coming out of this? Let's bring in Andy Lister, Financial Advisors, uh, IG Personal uh, Wealth Management. And, of course, you can hear uh, Planning Your Financial Future with us every single Saturday morning. Andy Lister is with us now. Andy, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. You're very welcome. No problem at all. Hope you're doing well during this time. Uh, We get to chat every week still uh, on Saturdays, which is great. But what are your thoughts? And we have covered this on the show, I guess. But what are your thoughts uh, in regard to a debt crisis that is coming after this? Uh, What about the recovery and how is the average family going to uh, endure that? Well, this is a great
2: question. And um, how much time have you got?
0: <laughs> Go <on for laughs> About four for minutes. A while. Yeah. A four, okay,
2: perfect. Quick, I'll speak quickly. Well, you know, the number one thing, obviously, from a consumer perspective is that the last decade, you know, really the last 20 years, but we've seen a continued rise in people's debt. And this has been fueled by low interest rates and um a desire to get into a, a strong real estate market as well, and now we're we faced with lower income. So we have higher debt now than before, and we have lower income because of uh, the pandemic and the economic crisis that it's created. But just you know, looking back, it, it was amazing to me that uh, you know our debt levels 20 years ago we had a debt ratio of $106. We owed $106 for every $100 of disposable income that we had. And um, 20 years later, in 2019, that had risen to $176 for every $100. So, gone from 106% up to 176%. And some estimates are that this is going to rise to over 230% because that, that other denominator, how much we income we have is actually going down. So we could see that number go up. So again, low interest rates, um, rising real estate has really driven this debt market. And for some people, that some of that's consumer debt, but a lot of times it's just on our mortgages.
0: What about inflation and interest rates and all the money that governments are injecting into the economy now to as a stopgap measure here? W- what about at the end of all of that? Are we concerned interest rates will rise and, and people will be pinched yet again?
2: I think that the, the, you know right now the, the, the interest rates will probably stay low for an extended period of time and that will be a function of trying to get the economy to grow again and uh you know this so i think you know really everybody's preparing for a slower recovery than we would like to see when you want to get an economic recovery you need people to spend and the consumer in canada accounts for about 60 percent of our economy so if the consumer is not spending then that means the economy is not growing And that means that those jobs that people have lost, it's going to be slower in terms of getting those back into place. Now, just if I was to summarize everything, at the end of the day, it's really all about just hanging on because the economy will recover and those jobs will return. It's just a function of how much time it will take. And that's, I guess, the big question mark. How how protracted or how long will this take to get us back to a, a regular sort of growth period?
0: We certainly are seeing more people out. We're seeing more traffic on the roads. Is it a matter of time before we start to see that reflected in numbers?
2: yeah, I, you know, I think what for the average person you know in Canada, your income is about per month. So that's the average Canadian. If you're living on a CERB right now of $2,000 a month, that's a pretty big drop. So you're not going to be spending a ton. And if if you've got debt on top of that, you're going to be concerned. So there's really sort of two camps here. Those that have continued to be able to work and probably can enter back into the economy and spending in a more normal fashion. And then those that have been hurt by this. And, And ironically, the the, 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 one of the biggest areas is, has been women. And, uh, and that's been a function of, you know, when you think about the biggest areas that have been hit through all of this, we've got um, salons, stylists, restaurants, tourism, all of that service industry, which is heavily female-dominated in many cases. And being able to come back to work means you also need childcare. You need a good childcare system. system. So we're, we're hearing
0: this phrase coined, it's a she-session, and we need a she-recovery to get back to where we were before are you concerned we've only got about 30 seconds left some of these jobs may not come back
2: i know and so you know if you're if you're struggling right now the big thing is cut expenses as much as possible you know maybe look at a consolidation loan i think uh, maybe you can negotiate a lower interest rate or refinancing bankruptcy is an option but it's a six-year recovery period from that consumer proposal do are better do not do a payday loan And at the end of the day, I think it's really just about hanging on, because if you can get those debts, those expenses down, get yourself through this, the economy will recover. Uh, So it's really just, you know, staying the course and hanging on as long as possible.
0: Andy Lister has been with us, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening every Saturday morning for Andy and Don planning your financial future. Andy, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. What are your thoughts on the stage two opening and only for certain parts?
3: Yeah, well, l- let's look at this as a glass half full. That's my natural inclination. Uh, there are 34 regions in Ontario that the province is monitoring, and 24 of the 34 can begin to open this weekend. And When I say begin to open, we're talking about restaurants, hairstyling salons, those sorts of things. That's great news. That's that's the right momentum now. Unfortunately, ten areas can't, and that includes Windsor and Lambton, at the down by Sarnia and and in the Windsor area, and then us in the Golden Horseshoe, including Niagara, Hamilton, Halton, um, Toronto, and and going a little further around. I think what that means is we will open, but probably not this weekend. Most likely, the weekend after. All the numbers are trending in the right direction. And those other areas that were allowed to open, they haven't had many cases, so there's not much risk. We're still getting the odd case, and we need to see those numbers come down a little further, but everything's moving in the right direction.
0: Uh, Obviously, we're seeing lots of protests going on, demonstrations going on uh, in Canada and the United States. Uh, I was talking about this with Scott Radley from the SPEC just moments ago, um, what happens if after two weeks from now, mm-hmm. with all of this uh, public protest, we don't see a spike in cases? Is that going to put pressure on leaders to open up more things? Is, will this social experiment be a medical experiment as well?
3: Yeah, well, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, now, a couple of things to remember. These were outdoor protests and things that are outdoors are less risky than things that are indoors. So had this all been held in a, a hockey arena, I think the likelihood of the cases spiking is higher. Much of this was outdoors. There was a good breeze. Again, some of the protesters were masked. Some of them weren't masked. But again, masks help in all of this. And, and certainly the pressure is continuing to mount on leaders to reopen. The next big date, if you will, federally, is June 21st. That's the border closed with the United States. If we're allowing people to go into hotels, if we're allowing restaurants to open, if we're allowing campgrounds, hey, why can't, why can't we get some of those American dollars to flow north of the border? So once we get momentum positively, there's pressure going to be to keep moving it. And and let me just say to that front, we had a big story today out in New Zealand. New Zealand, uh, now it's an island nation and only 5 million people, but they have no active cases of COVID. Nobody in hospital, nobody being treated, nobody being infected. Uh, It's a sign that this disease can be beaten if we take the right steps. And if this momentum continues, yes, there's going to be great pressure, certainly for the July 1st weekend, to get us back as close as we can to normal.
0: What is your feeling about this gradual reopening? We always heard that, uh, you know, this was a, uh, a self-induced, uh, uh, financial crisis or recession, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and as soon as we decide to stop it, boom, everything's going to go just whip back into place. The economy's going to take off. Look out. Um, is that necessarily going to be the case? Not only because there is a very gradual reopening, but also, um, a consumer reaction are, are they willing to jump back in maybe mm-hmm. people have been locked up so long that they are but will this bounce back as much as quickly as people think
3: right so i guess the way to think about this is when we shut things down we did that very very quickly we ground big chunks of the economy to a halt in less than two weeks now that we're trying to reactivate, it's not going to be two weeks to restart. We're looking more on the order of three months to restart. So the recovery will be slower than the shutdown was for sure. Uh, as well, um, not every business is going to survive this. We've been seeing stories of businesses that are in some cases being evicted. Others where people are saying, well, I'm just going to take and retire and not going to start. So there is going to be some slowing in terms of jobs. We're not going to see all the jobs bounce back quickly. I think you're still going to see an impact on the unemployment rate even by Christmas time. Although by Christmas time, we'll be into single digits and probably in the six, seven percent range, but not where we were before. Now, you've raised the trillion-dollar question here. That's consumer confidence. We have done such a good job of scaring consumers and staying home, social distancing, what have you. What is going to be the number that's going to lure them out of that hibernation? I use that example because today 99.9% of Canadians do not have an active case of COVID, and yet we're still saying, well, you got to be careful. If that got to 99.99%, will that be enough? Or is the benchmark zero? Is the benchmark New uh, New Zealand's number, which is zero? Until you get to zero, I'm not venturing out. I've had other nice people tell me that they're not venturing out until there's a vaccine, even though Canada has no mandatory vaccination laws that would enforce a vaccination upon us. And, And I think at some point, you may actually hear the government talking, if you will, out of the other side of their mouth, saying, it's close enough now, folks. You've done the right thing. Yes, we still have I don't know, 100 active cases, or maybe we've got 500 active cases across this country. But look, that's close enough. Come on out and enjoy yourself. And whether people will do that, I'm not clear. I, I actually had an optometrist appointment today, and uh, I, I was kind of surprised. It was supposed to be at the end of May how you've rescheduled it so quickly. And, and the person said, well, we've been calling people to reschedule, and a lot of them don't mm. want to come, uh, even though we're taking all these precautions. So winning back consumer confidence will also take a while.
0: Marvin Ryder, business professor, at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, there's been lots of chatter. Uh, in how we move forward in regard to uh, the tragic death of George Floyd and the demonstrations and marches and such that are going on uh, pretty much around the world when you think about it as well as obviously uh, in the United States. Uh, among growing calls uh, of protests for major police reforms in the United States, uh, Minneapolis, uh, the city council announced their intent to disband the city's police department. Uh, Councilman Steve Fletcher says the police department has resisted reforms at every turn. Here Here's what he had to say. It's not that we're dismantling a system that was
2: working. We're dismantling a system that actually wasn't working very well for us uh, and
0: seeing if we can design something better, and I believe we can. All right, let's bring in Christian Leprec, a professor at the Royal Military College and Queens University and is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So, lots of calls to defund police. What does this mean? Uh, many are, are taking this uh, to mean that we're abolishing getting rid of the police. What does this actually mean?
4: Yeah, so to me, this means something different. It means a broader call for having a democratic conversation that is long overdue in this country about uh, the community safety outcomes that collectively we want to achieve. What are our aims, our objectives, and our ends? And I think there's two separate issues. One is if we work backwards from those public safety outcomes to the different means with which we can achieve those, we will find that um, policing in many cases is neither the most effective nor the most efficient way to achieve those. But we've ended up securitarizing many problems that are really sort of social economic challenges through divestment and underinvestment by both municipal and provincial governments which means that the services that people need are either not available, not available when they need them, or for the duration of time, um, or at the intensity that's required. I think the other side of this conversation about uh, um, about community policing is that while we all talk about the broader safety outcomes that we might have in mind, what police forces think about when they think about safety, what city councils think about, what citizens writ large in Hamilton might think about, and what different uh, communities, and especially racialized communities um, in and around Hamilton might think about when they think about safety is very different so if you live for instance, a marginalized community. Then issues, when you think about safety, you might think about issues such as food security, such as economic security, especially under the current virus circumstances. And so I think we actually need a much broader conversation among different communities, what it is that they actually understand by the ends. And so I think the public conversation about defunding police confuses symptoms with broader sort of root causes and issues that we should instead be discussing.
0: So, is this about uh, uh, is this about making or or unloading too much on the police departments, which should be uh, uh, diverted to other services, i.e., mental health, uh, 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 drug training? I'm, I'm just I'm just used throwing out examples here. Are we asking police to fill in these holes uh, they're not qualified for?
4: I have written repeatedly and said that police have become the social workers of last resort. Many of my uniformed friends say that they're actually the social workers of first resort. Um, and it's become more challenging, I would say, over the last 15, 20 years, um, as governments uh, have had greater fiscal challenges in terms of providing uh, the broader services that individuals and communities require or are looking for and so what ends up happening is that police end up backstopping all sorts of issues and all sorts of causes that they themselves will be the first ones to say that they don't have a comparative advantage to respond to in terms of calls but in many municipalities now up to forty percent of calls received have some dimension, for instance, of mental health issues, where police will be the first ones to say, look, you know, it's, it's, we're probably not the best people to respond to this type of call. But there's no one else to respond to, and someone is calling about a concern about uh, whoever it might be who's related to them, and, you know, you've got a better check on them. The other challenge is, of course, that in some of these cases, yeah, you know, it's easy to say we should just substitute social workers for um, uniformed members. But of course, when you have a call for someone with a knife, um, a social worker is probably, you know, would put their own sort of life at risk. And so, yes, you might need a collective response between a social worker and a uniformed member. And in larger municipalities, uh, we do have those teams out on the street. But ultimately, when you have a weapons call, you need members who are trained in the application and use of use of force. At the same time, you need members who are uh, who can dissuade individuals from uh, taking any action that might harm themselves, harm the public, or harm members. And we forget in these conversations that, of course, police, including in Hamilton, have thousands of interactions with the public every day, and the resort to what's known as use of force tools, baton, pepper, stray, chaser, your sidearm, let alone discharging that sidearm, are exceptionally rare and so we need to be careful not to take individual instances and turn these into some broad brushstroke about how police in quotation mark interact with the public Um,
0: but it seems that uh, christian for years we've been saying uh... the police aren't sensitive to these issues the police need to be trained with these issues uh... you know they need to have uh... uh... more training so if they encounter somebody who has a mental illness, they know what to do. So we're forcing all of this on them. Now we're saying we're going to take all of that away. How can we suck and blow at the same time here?
4: So it, it, these are policing has become exceptionally complex, I would say, over the last uh, 25 or so years. And we do have fairly extensive training. We have very high standards in terms of uh professional standards and professional conduct for policing that's not to say that there aren't individual members uh who don't um uh, who maybe don't accord themselves uh, uh, always in line with training or with the law um and of course that needs to be uh, we need to be able to root out uh, those individuals um but ultimately uh, police perform uh, a key and important societal function and there's no functioning modern society uh... that it doesn't have that particular that particular service but i do think more broadly in terms of sort of sucking and blowing at the same time this is a conversation about professionalizing policing services i think the public has the same sort of expectations of police um and of all people who wear the uniform that they do of other professions of teachers of nurses of physicians of lawyers of engineers Um, And so I think that means a uh, a different way of looking at the profession as a whole, different ways of recruiting, of training, of education, but also different ways of managing the force. The force is still you work your way up over 30 years. You start at the front lines and eventually you become chief. Most corporations, including the one that you work for and that most of the listeners probably work for, have specialized VPs in human resources, in Mm. finance, in operations, um, where this is what they've studied, this is what they apply, and this is what their expertise is. And we lack that sort of specialization within policing, and we still think that the uniforms need to manage the entire police department, the entire police force, and I think we'd all be better off if the uniforms focused on operations, and we would let professionals run the other elements where uniforms do not enjoy a comparative advantage. And so that conversation about professionalizing policing in Canada is long overdue.
0: How are police services reacting to this? What do they do next? That
4: depends on what constituency I think you talk to. I think many chiefs have, um, in in letters to the public and in their own actions, uh, expressed uh, empathy and sympathy for concerns by the public uh, i think we've seen associations uh... in some cases be constructive in other cases resist all forms of change uh, but look i think policing is a is 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 a very expensive service if you think about that your average uniform member makes uh, a first-class constable makes about a hundred thousand dollars in uh... ontario municipalities now and so i think the public has a right to expect for that sort of level of compensation nothing but a gold standard in terms of the services uh, that those uniformed members uh, deliver. And I think the public might also be concerned that um, uh, perhaps they're not getting entirely what they feel that they're paying for. Uh, and so I think revisiting uh, whether there are better ways of doing this, and I would say we might want to start with a conversation about de some of the functions we've given to police, and that might involve, I think, police departments civilianizing some functions, contracting out some functions, and thinking about uh, do we really need a highly trained generalist to respond to many of the calls that we have, and is there a better way uh, and a more sustainable model for doing business? After all, uh, fire and police services are the uh, single, um, are the main driver of your property tax increases on an annual basis and when people are losing jobs and losing income I don't think they'll be particularly thrilled um, about uh, a significant property tax increase so they can keep on paying for a service that uh, some people feel they're not getting what they're
0: paying for. Is this a, tur- a turning point Christian? Will things change now moving forward or w- uh, six months from now will we be saying remember that? will this Will this make a change?
4: We seem to like to blame uh, lay blame at the hands of uh, at the feet of police, but really, this is all about politics and about politicians. If we want to change the outcomes of policing in this province, we need to change the way Services are funded, we need to change legislative frameworks, and we need to change rules and regulations. And politicians are notoriously reticent to get engaged in conversations about police because police associations immediately push back against such politicians that somehow they're weak on crime or soft on crime, even though we know there's no direct correlation between crime and policing. But I think I'm hoping that the public sentiment here has sufficiently galvanized the political leaders at the municipal level and at the provincial level to understand that change is necessary and is in everyone's benefit um, and that that's finally a democratic conversation that we can have and let's remember in a democracy the people have the right to decide and i think we haven't heard enough of the voice of the people in this conversation about policing in this country
0: Christian Lloyd Practice has been with us, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, explaining defunding the police. Christian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
4: It's been my pleasure. Thank
0: you. All right, while well, covering the Black Lives Matter protest in Toronto, global journalist Karen Lieberman was interrupted during her report with a vile and vulgar phrase that uh, too often female reporters uh... have to put up with she confronted her harasser to talk more about all of this karen lieberman is with us senior uh, senior digital broadcast journalist with global news in toronto and with us now karen thank you for the time much appreciated hope you're doing well
5: i am thanks so much for having me
0: so tell us what happened so you're down there covering the black lives matter protests what happened
5: so my cameraman editor tyler thornley and i had been out there for probably about two hours by that point um, following along with the march and speaking with many very passionate um, and very peaceful demonstrators who were there, as you say, to protest anti-Black racism um, and also, obviously, Black lives that have been lost at the hands of police. And everything had been going really well. It was very peaceful, and it, it continued to be that way until, of course, there was a moment where we're at this corner of a, a busy intersection downtown And a man walked by while we were filming and yelled out a phrase that, as you say, many, um, sadly, female journalists have had to listen to um, being yelled at in the past. I, too, have had it yelled at me maybe two other times in my career, uh, but certainly never in such a dramatic fashion and covering something so critically important as the message was. Um, And I went after him because, I guess, um, well, A, probably adrenaline, And B, because the same reason everyone else is standing up right now around the world and saying enough is enough for whatever your message or your reason, um, you know, this is one of them too. Sexism, you know, discrimination, harassment, enough is enough. I'm tired of it. I don't want to listen to it anymore. And I don't think that I should be subjected to it when I'm doing my job.
0: So what happened when you confronted this person?
5: He kept on walking, um, lifted his mask to cover his face and... uh, and actually, there was a woman with him. You don't really see it in, in the in the video that we, of course, Tyler was filming the whole thing, and so that's why, of course, this whole thing was captured on camera. And then the video, which I put out there and uh, one of my colleagues had tweeted about as well, ended up going viral for many reasons. But what you don't see is that there is, there was a woman with him, and she yelled at me and said, um, "Okay, it's enough, back off," something like that. And I did stop talking, but I, you know, it was it was such a quick experience, and I, I think I said something like, you know super cool it's really classy and uh you know way to take away from the message um and and you know right in front of police because there were police everywhere and of course that was uh, that was harassment and i would imagine that he could be charged for that and so that's what i meant when i referred to the police in that moment um and he kept walking and you can unfortunately see it in the video um no one said anything i don't know if anyone heard I mean, certainly she heard and the people kind of spread spread about um spread out a little bit in the crowd, but this was a very passionate, loud crowd as it was, so I don't know that anyone, you know, would have stopped, but I think that the lesson in it all, you know, moments later when, of course, the adrenaline (laughs) slows down and we all took a breath, myself and Tyler, is that, you know, you need to stand up for yourself, and we're, we're all entitled to have a fair, um, working environment. And for me, it was such an important assignment because of the weight of this movement right now, and what happened south of the border and, and the fact that, you know, we could ultimately be on, you know, we could ultimately be seeing change happen around the world. And so that's why this assignment I knew was so important. And I take every assignment seriously. Um, and so, yeah, I challenged him.
0: (laughs) How odd is it you're at a rally about human rights and this happens? Is right. Was this person a protester?
5: Well, he certainly was in the protest. Uh, yeah. He was marching with the protesters. He was wearing a t-shirt. Uh, on the back of it it said, Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, was well, it said BLM and it said, you know, F the police. So, um, so how does he, he
0: justify saying such a thing when yeah. he's all about supposedly human rights?
5: You know what? I've I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you. I've, I've questioned that myself and it was extremely unfortunate. Whether Do you think this was an extreme?
0: Do you think, Karen, this is an extremist? We've heard this like, you know, 99 percent mm-hmm. of the people that are out there protesting are doing so with the cause in mind and are doing so peacefully. Uh, then there's a small amount of people on both the left and the right that are trying to cause disruption. Do you think it was somebody from one of those groups, extremist groups?
5: Well, I like to think that he wasn't one of the peaceful protesters. Certainly, he was there to cause trouble. um, Whether he had been previously and after that encounter, I really don't know. It was sort of like a snapshot in time and it it affected me. Um, And so um, I think that you know I, what I've heard and what I've read on Twitter and other social media, Instagram as well, is that this person does not represent Black Lives Matter. This is not the kind of person that they want in this movement. You know, yeah. um, and and so I don't think that he. You know, I don't know. You know whether it was a stupid thing. It was a stupid thing to say. Um, but you know, he certainly said it was intent. Um, and I don't think he expected me to go after him, that's for sure, because he sort of like, you know, sneaked off and then, like I said, or sneaked off and he raised his mask to cover his face. And who knows? Who knows if you learned a lesson? Probably not.
0: It's amazing. People have the gall to do this, not only in our society where everyone has a camera, but you've got a person that's carrying one right behind you. I mean, it just seems nuts.
5: It totally is. And you know what? Like I said, it's happened to me before. Um, And the other time I was filming as well, but it was a one-on-one interview. Um, I remember outside a courthouse downtown, I was interviewing a criminal defense lawyer, actually, of all things, and and a person yelled it at me driving past in a car. It happened to me once while I was probably nine months pregnant covering a terrible crime that had happened in Toronto of a pregnant woman who was killed, actually, very ironic. Mm. And a man also yelled it at me uh, while driving past in his car. But this was a guy that was walking on foot, and passed me by in a protest that, as you say, was about equality, you know, about lives mattering, black lives matter, all lives matter. And so the irony of all ironies is that this is what happened.
0: Karen Lieberman has been with us, senior digital broadcast journalist with Global News in Toronto, and, of course, you can see your report on the Global News website. Karen, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
5: You as well. Thanks so much.
0: Bye-bye. Take care. It is 1257 News on the way, and then we will cover the news conference of Premier Doug Ford coming up live. Listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Nice weather is here, uh, a beautiful weekend. Uh, people wanting to get out. However, as we keep reminding everybody, it's uh, we still need to physical uh, physically distance. Uh, we're supposed to keep two meters apart, and if you can't do that. Uh, then obviously uh, you should be wearing a mask. Uh, Some interesting uh, stats coming out of uh, the Hammer this past week, and that being that uh, the majority of the cases, I shouldn't say that, 43% of Hamilton's uh, new cases in the last 10 days were those under the age of 20. So where does that leave us? Uh, Obviously, um we're very concerned about how this uh, affects uh, those in uh, aged homes and the senior population and such. But it appears as if uh, maybe the younger people aren't heeding this advice. And as a result, we're starting to see an uptake on all of these uh, younger demographics. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He's a medical doctor, health policy expert, and with us now. Uh, Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Happy to speak to you. So your thoughts, before we get into these individual numbers and demographics and such, your your thoughts as to where we are now. Um, obviously, in the last week, we've seen cases go up over uh, 400 new cases uh, daily and such. Now it seems that we're uh, back down below 300, two, uh, 243 new uh, uh, this day uh, in the last 24 hours, and 24 have passed away. Your thoughts on where we are generally?
6: I think that's where we are is uh, I will say something that might be a bit controversial. I think that overall coronavirus managed to actually win uh, this fight against uh, sort of people's ability to fight it off. What I'm trying to say here, Scott, is that what we've seen this past weekend with more people attending parks and being outside is that People have reached the wits end of social distancing, and now people are desperate to get back to life uh, as we knew it before. Uh, I think we are getting closer to a point where we are better in terms of our system's ability to adapt and respond to COVID-19, and that we are going to slowly now see loosening of social restrictions, opening up of places throughout. But the concern still remains about our most important demographic, our elderly, immunocompromised, and our priority groups, which are shelter homes and long-term care centres, that we need to keep an eye on moving forward.
0: Doctor, we certainly have seen, and, you know, all you have to do is go out to notice there are more people out. Traffic is heavier uh, than what it has been in weeks past. And as you mentioned, uh, you, you know, people are sort of at their wits' end. And, and I understand that. I mean, everybody's uh, everybody's feeling this pinch. Uh, that being said, there is a way to, to handle both of this. There is a way to do this responsibly. Are, are we forgetting that?
6: I don't think we're forgetting that. I think I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that the majority of people do understand the importance of continuing public health interventions. But I will tell you this as somebody who tried to go out this past weekend to see what the sort of the sense of the pulse of the community is here, for example, in downtown Toronto, the majority of people are out. I mean, I was looking at parks from a distance and seeing groups of larger than 10 people. And it was very clear to me that people are just thinking that life is back to normal. Very few, if any, people at this Uh, The couple of parks I I looked at were wearing masks. Uh, And so it is a concern, you know. And then well, also my biggest concern right now is as people are going out in the communities, our public washrooms, for example, as simple as that, are not open. So where are people using the bathrooms and toilets? And we know that there's a higher rate of infection there. So what I'm trying to say is we really need a a lot more of a comprehensive action plan as we are reopening. We need to figure out if we are going to reopen stores and parks, where do we expect our people to go to the washrooms? You and I discussed a few weeks ago about how we need to paint circles in parks. Next thing we know, it happened. So my plea here to so anybody listening mm-hmm. to this, decision makers, to public health officials in places of power, to please put forward an idea or an action plan about when people are out of the parks, where are we expecting them to go to use the bathroom? Because I think that's going to be the next big question to answer.
0: So obviously if you're going to open these services you have to open uh, the amenities to the, the those right. services uh, you know if if people are coming there they're going to need those basic amenities
6: but they're not open right so we're like very yeah. i haven't noticed a single park where there is a washroom I and mean, if you talk to people who are going out in the community that's their biggest concern it's like you want me to – you're reopening things, but you're not reopening it and thinking it thoroughly about, like, where do we do – what do we do about those individuals? I and mean, we saw in Trinity Park, Scott, that people were defecating on lawns, yeah. and it was a major concern. Has that problem been resolved? I think as a health policy expert, I need to raise the alarm on those issues that this part of a comprehensive action plan needs to be put in place
0: uh this is sort of an offshoot but but answer this question ahmad uh we've certainly heard people uh and their concerns over used medical supplies ppes you know we heard of people mm-hmm. in, in large shopping mall parking lots just finding these things discovered as, or discarded as people get into their cars and, and shed them we've also heard reports of of municipalities upset because people are flushing them in and, and, and wrecking the system so uh just as sort of as a, as a sidebar here what is the proper way to handle these supplies what should we be doing with them?
6: Yeah, I'm so happy you brought this up because I've been noticing also people are using sort of a cheaper version of PPEs. I'm not sure where they're acquiring this from, so not the proper ones. And this is the point that we all, everybody in health, have been saying from early on. PPEs should be reserved for our healthcare providers. And the reason for that primarily is that those healthcare providers are trained to know how to dispose of them properly and have the mechanism to do so. Please don't confuse that with me trying to say that you're not supposed to be wearing a mask. We already accomplished that. We already established the premises that you are allowed to wear a cloth mask. To protect yourself. But PPEs are really reserved for healthcare providers who have an extreme high risk of infection or getting COVID 19. And also, partly because, like you said, they know how to dispose of it, they know how to wear it properly, they're not disposing it on the streets and trash bags. They also know how to wear it the, the appropriate way.
0: All right, new numbers coming out of Hamilton doctor a forty three percent of uh, Hamilton's new cases in the last ten days are those in and around the age of twenty. Your thoughts?
6: Uh, I was very concerned when I saw the support before it was reported in the news. I got alert to it. Uh, I think that partly my initial reaction was this is probably expected as you know younger people have their energy levels are higher in the summer, they want to be out with their friends. And they have very low tolerance. And when you spoke to a lot of those parents of those children, they told you that they tried to get the children to wear their masks. I should call them young adults. Uh, their masks or practice, safe, you know, hand hygiene. A lot of them said it was too restrictive. And it goes to, say, to me, to my idea as a professor who teaches young, uh, young adults, is that we need to find better ways to engage with them. So uh, what they found out was when you actually asked a lot of those young adults in Hamilton as to why they're doing this, they told you they're aware of the public health intervention, but they sort of reached a point where they are aware of it and don't care as much about it because they just want to live a normal life. And it made me start to think is, should we be conveying our message differently to them?
0: So how do you do that? How, how uh, again, a lot of them think, hey, it's, it's not a disease that affects my generation. So uh, if they are, do have that feeling of, of uh, indispensability, where do they go?
6: I find that the best way to convince people is through storytelling. And what I mean by that is that when you convey to somebody a real story of somebody who a young adult who was able to, to uh, transmit COVID-19 to their aunt or uncle or the immunocompromised child and the devastating effect that happened on that family, I think the majority of young adults, when they hear those stories, they are compelled to take action. Young adults are very socially mobilized. They love a, a, a plan and an action and a cause to fight for and I'm not sure we're doing a good job of giving them that cause, of giving them that story, that compelling story to tell them, please practice uh, public health interventions. Please continue social distancing and, 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 uh, and guidance. And lastly, what I will say to this is that they're also taking a lead from adults. So if they are going to the parks and seeing other adults not wearing face masks, not practicing safe hygiene in gatherings, more than five to 10 people then, of course, we can't expect them to follow a lead, they follow example. They are looking at us to be the example for them.
0: So uh, we, we've talked many times, Doctor, about a second wave with this information on the younger demographic. Could a second wave look different than we anticipate, meaning it affecting yes. more younger people?
6: Absolutely, I think. But, I mean, you have to be careful with that with that narrative because, even if it affects younger people, we still know from the evidence that the yeah. elderly and the immunocompromised are the most vulnerable and where the biggest focus would be. I, I, will ch- I will say this, based on early evidence of what's coming out right now, and what I said earlier in, your, in the interview today, coronavirus won. And it won because it was, it's been able to really sort of dismantle systems. But what it did do, is it, what we did do in Canada, is that we bought ourselves time. So the message today is we won in the sense that we were able to buy time for our health systems, to get the supplies we need, to adapt to the new reality. And right now, what we're trying to do is figure out how to live in this new current reality we have.
0: Um, uh, One angle I wanted to ask you about as well. Uh, Ahmad was the number of deaths right now with the Canadian cases we're sitting at 7800 just over 7800 deaths in Canada from this when this started many compared this to the seasonal flu and saying this is similar to that until we realized how quickly that it spread so now we're sitting around that mark where this is just over what we normally see pass away uh, from the seasonal flu Uh, every year. How significant is that this number is as high as it is and now comparable to those numbers? And we haven't even hit flu season yet. Exactly. So the
6: answer is in the world seasonal. So seasonal means that most uh, the flu usually happens during the winter season. But COVID-19 started in the winter, moved into spring, and now we're in the summer. It's transcending seasons. This is why it's so devastating. This is why COVID-19 is not a joke. Uh, You talk to public health, infectious disease experts who are in our hospitals dealing with intensive care units. Many of them are still raising the alarm and saying, hey, people, people are still dying in our hospital because of COVID-19. The reality is the virus didn't go away. It's still there. It exists in our communities. Our job right now is to figure out how to live with it and make, make sure that it doesn't have this sort of catastrophic response it's having in our neighboring country like the U.S. I mean, we see the example of where it is having a much worse uh, outcome than it is here in Canada. We see great examples. I mean, we heard today from New Zealand, for example, yeah. zero new cases. New Zealand has been able to sort of get ahead of this. So can we learn from that and can we move forward on that?
0: So can we expect as the fall approaches after the summer, just to uh, see another six to 7,000 pass away just from the seasonal flu as well as this?
6: Yes, and so I think it would be very hard to say no to that. I think, if anything, our projection models have been, we want to say fluid is the right word here. They've been very adaptive and changing over time. Uh, And so it's going to be very interesting to see in the fall how the uh, combination with COVID and the flu, what the outcome would look like on our sort of our health system. And the concern will be then is that in addition to COVID-19, we then we start the flu season where we know there's going to be a bit more of a strain on our health systems. But the hope is that by then we've sort of adapted the way we uh, deliver healthcare, care. We're using more telehealth technology and better ways of assessing our patients that we won't fall into the trap of saying that our system is overburdened.
0: So as you mentioned earlier, uh, we have flattened the curve, that was the idea was to spread this out over a longer period of time so it didn't overwhelm uh, the system, certainly the hospital systems. Uh, we didn't anticipate what happened, I guess, in in seniors' homes and such, but we have sort of pushed down the top of that curve and stretched it out of a, long per- a longer period of time. So what does that mean moving forward? Uh, what's the next stage of after flattening that curve?
6: I think that, that, that's one key message that sort of I don't see it being conveyed well enough, is to say bravo to the general population for doing a good job of buying us time. Uh, I think we need to acknowledge that. That's part a positive reinforcement of saying that the efforts we all did, I mean, this took a lot of toll on business owners, on Families and individuals being locked up in their homes for so long to say, You've done a great job of doing that. You bought the system, the time. We delivered them what we wanted. This does not mean that the game is over or the challenge is over. We need to continue doing that to a certain extent to continuously buy time until a vaccine or a treatment is in the market. So, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that I, for, for myself, for example, and my family members are still continuing to practice the best that we can. Uh, into, you know, two-meter distance, uh, face masks, hand sanitizer, those measures are a reality now. So you need to continue doing that to buy ourselves more and more time. We're not saying that you need to be as restrictive as you were at the beginning of this, but I'm saying that if you, you are going out in the community, please always carry a face mask with you, a cloth face mask just to protect your face in case you have any symptoms, and also always carry with a portable hand sanitizer and use it as much as you can. Those are measures that you can control and avoid gathering in people more than 5, 10. That's key. That's really important that we continue doing those.
0: And any message for uh, younger people as we see these numbers, 43% of Hamilton's new cases in the last 10 days are around the age of 20, if not uh, under 20. What reinforcement there?
6: I would say, then, please help us, uh, people who are in decision-making capacity, to understand better how to convince you about the importance of this issue. And if it is what I said earlier, the narrative storytelling of conveying stories for you, reach out, uh, convey to your parents and people around you who might be able to listen to your needs about what is it that we can do to sort of help you uh, get ahead of this, but also be part of the change. And I think that young adults are looking to be part of that change. We just need to convey what they were aiming for in that overall message.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert and professor. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You to you, Scott. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.